If you'd open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 20. And this is the Christmas story. You've been wondering, perhaps, if we were going to get to it at all this Christmas season. Isaiah is a book that proclaims the coming Messiah, the shalom and the peace that he will bring. And then Luke chapter 2 details the events, the circumstances surrounding the Messiah's breaking into this world. Let's begin in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and a glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And this is God's word. And this is the promised one who brings shalom and peace. In Isaiah 48, verse 18, there is the rebuke to the nation of Israel that, that if only they would have listened to the promises of God. It says, oh, if you had just paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. A river flows with life, and in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Near East, a river brought life to the desert land, and where the water was, there was life, and there would be the fruition, the fruit of peace, if you had listened. This Christmas, are we listening? Are we seeing and hearing the great Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to bring shalom? Now, now, the story begins really with some political drama. In verse 1 in Luke chapter 2, we're introduced to Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus in world history is one of the Roman Caesars that had a profound impact. We even still feel his impact even today. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. 
Julius Caesar, one of the greatest Caesars that had lived. Of course, he was made famous by his assassination, but he was a great military genius. And you can actually read his historical works today as he writes on battlefield tactics and such. But Augustus, or Octavian as he was born, really epitomized what the true Roman Caesar was. He, and then Tiberius, who followed after him, who reigned during the life of Christ. Both these men, really, it is arguable that you will not find other Caesars that so epitomized the Roman Empire as these two men. Caesar, in the words German, Kaiser, comes from Caesar because they wanted to be linked with Caesar, specifically Augustus or Julius, Kaiser Wilhelm, World War I. The word czar, the Russian czar, that czar comes from car, which comes from the root word of Caesar. All of this comes from that trying to draw back to the mighty ones of antiquity, the Caesars, like Augustus. Now Augustus, or born Octavian was his real name, was emperor of the Roman world at the time of Jesus' birth. Civil war, however, broke out between him and then Mark Antony, and Cleopatra, and maybe you recognize those names that have been so popularized in modern culture. Octavian came out victorious at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, and the Roman Senate conferred upon Octavian the title Augustus, which means exalted or venerable. And we see that Jesus' entry into the world occurs in a real, living, breathing world. And he comes on the scene just as this man has reached the zenith of human exaltation. A man who came into his kingdom in violence and in self-aggrandizement. So in those days, a degree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. He wants to know where everybody is, how many people there are in his provinces. Maybe this was just regionally in the Palestine area or in his greater empire. But this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We don't really know who this guy is historically. We have one or two records of him. Uh, He could have been governor twice. We don't really know. There's some mystery there. But all went to be registered, each to his own town. And verse 4, we're introduced to Joseph. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So you have a, a number of geographical designations here. That he is in Galilee. He's from Nazareth. This is where he's living. This is where Jesus is going to grow up and to fulfill that prophecy that he will be a Nazarene. He will grow up like a branch, Isaiah chapter 11. And he goes from Galilee to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the the house of bread, Bethlehem translates to. And literally it says they went up. Why? Because even the geographical conscientiousness of the text, it knows its land, it knows its history, it knows its geography because you go up 1,800 feet from the Galilee all the way up to Bethlehem. And why is he there? Why is he going? Because he's of the lineage of David, the great king of old. He is a descendant of King David. And he went with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, why is God moving Joseph to Bethlehem? Well, again, to fulfill another prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a well-known prophecy among the Israelites. 
that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And in Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from whom shall come forth from, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So God is moving Joseph, Mary, to Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy. He's of the line of David, also fulfilling the prophecy made to King David that there would be one who would come out from him, a line, a descendant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God told David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So I find it fascinating, the juxtaposition of these two realities. You have Augustus, the self-proclaimed exalted one who took his kingdom by violence and force, and he is aggrandizing himself, even asking people, worship me. And then you have the entry of the true king of heaven, who's coming on the scenes, who's not entering into his kingdom by violence, but in humility. He's also coming, actually not this first time, in self-exaltation, but actually in self-abasement, in humility. I also find it fascinating that, that in order to get Joseph to go to Bethlehem, I mean, think about it. God wanted to fulfill the prophecy, and he wanted to get Joseph to Bethlehem so Jesus could be born in Bethlehem to fulfill that prophecy. Then why didn't great aunt Rebecca get sick and Joseph is just going to visit her? I mean, why not just go on a family vacation? They didn't go on vacation in the ancient world, but, you know, there's a myriad of ways that God could have moved Joseph and Mary from Galilee to Bethlehem to accomplish his purpose. But in contrast to Augustus, who thinks he's in control of the world, God in his sovereignty, the true Augustus, the true elevated and exalted one, is going to move the heart of kings and kingdoms. He's going to move the world and history itself in order to move one man from Galilee, a couple miles south, to Bethlehem, just to show the world who really is in control. You know what I find humorous? is he accomplished his purpose through big government and taxation. Now that is not an argument for big government and taxation. But if anything proves the sovereignty of God, how about this, right? God is bigger than big government and taxation. And that God can move the hearts of governments and leaders, and accomplish his purposes through the frailty and the evil and the chaos that we see in order to bring his son on the scene, then brother and sister, what we see on the news today, guess what? God can still accomplish his purposes today, amen? I mean, it's almost ironic and humorous just to see how God brought his son into the world. Now, as we see the entry of the Christ to be registered with his parents Mary is betrothed, she's with child, then we come to verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So we see God showing his sovereignty, moving his people, just two, so that they could come to Bethlehem, that Jesus can be born and in contrast to Augustus and the kings of the world, he is going to be born in a manger because there's no room 
for them in the end. Now, there's been much ink spilled on the fact that there were no inns in this day, and that is true. There are no hotels. There's no Motel 6s, and there were, there's no vacancy signs, you know, that you see in these children's cartoons, you know. I, I love that children's cartoon, The Star, but you know what? It's very many ways, very unbiblical. It's just funny, good entertainment. But uh, when, when we think of, they came to, the, to Bethlehem, and they're coming to a family home, and the family home is full. All, all of Joseph's relatives have all their other relatives coming in to be registered as well. That's one option. The second option is there is an actual campsite, a place where caravans would congregate, and you would camp out there uh, with the other people in the caravan. Either way, there's no place. The, the, the city is filled. There's no place for them. There's no place to welcome them. It's just simply a logistic reality. And she gives birth and wraps him not in the glories of heaven as he deserves, but rather in humility. He is laid in a feeding trough. Now, now who is this Jesus, this son that has been born? Who is this baby that is right now confined by a couple of rough-hewn pieces of wood or a hollowed-out stone very common manger structures in the ancient world. Who is this baby? Colossians 1 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that little baby who can't even walk, is holding the universe together. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God, very God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, this baby who cannot speak and only utters in goo-goos and gagas. His word upholds the cosmos. Don't make that baby angry. <laughs> right? Who is this Jesus and his unveiled glory? Revelation chapter 1 verse 14 to 16 says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet, like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This baby in the manger pulled back the facade, the, the, the reality of his flesh, not just a facade, forgive me, but rather for, pulled back his, his true divine identity and his true exalted humanity. And we see one that you can't even stare in the face for his glory. That his power is such that in his hand he palms stars. Now I know in Revelation it's figuratively speaking, but taken in context with Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, this is the God that we can't get any closer to the sun right now, one star, without being burned up because of its sheer power. And this baby, this Jesus, palms them in his hand. It's a scale of power that is impossible to comprehend. And yet in contrast to Augustus, he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. You know, pride is something that we, when we think of pride, we think of someone who is a pompous, puffed up, arrogant individual. But what is pride? Pride really is self-magnification. Self-magnification. Pride is putting the focus on us. It's magnifying ourselves. And we can do that, frankly, in two different ways. I mean, there's many ways that it can play out. But for the sake of argument, two main ways that we tend to self-magnify. On one side, we self-magnify how important and great we are. And all the blessings we have, well, we deserve them. We, We know. We've earned them. And maybe that's the pride that we're most familiar with, the pride that puffs up. We're putting the spotlight on ourselves. We want people to see our giftedness, our abilities. We want people to know our name. We want a lot of followers on Instagram or Facebook. We want that celebrity status. We want people to ooh and ah and fawn over us. It's the price of pride of self-magnification and self-exaltation. But then there's the pride of self-magnification where we It's really a self-pity, self-abasement. In this context, it's it's on us and we're like, woe is me. I feel like I I should have. I deserve, but I don't have. It's it's the pity of, oh, woe, I, I wish that I had this or that. And in that case as well, the focus is on us and it's what we don't have, but really what we think we should have. You follow me? Right? It's the pride of like, it's, all, it's, it's about my needs and what I think I deserve and how people don't respect me like they should or they don't honor me like they should. And you know what? I'm really not that good of a person. It's the belief that I should be better. And in both cases, it's a magnification on self. It's it's a pride of self-magnification. What I find here so interesting in this text is that Jesus, who deserves all the magnification and all the glorification, emptied himself of those things he deserved and lowered himself and was willing to become nothing for the sake of others. This is a God. This is a Messiah like no other. And he comes in a manger. And in verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. So now we move to a scene. We, we back up from the events that are happening in Bethlehem. And right in the field surrounding Bethlehem, there are shepherds out there watching their sheep. And then an angel appeared. The glory of the Lord shone around them. This is not just like a flashlight, like an omnidirectional uh, light that, 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 that shines one way, like the lights above us, down onto us. It says the glory of the Lord shone around them. It's almost as if the light of God's glory is emanating from everywhere at the same time. It's like the, the night sky, not like this cone of light coming out of the sky, but, but, but the, the night sky has just become lit with the presence of the glory of God. And and they look around and say, what's happening? And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, naturally, 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the angelic announcement is the fear not, good news. Evangelizo, I preach good news, I proclaim good news, which we get the word evangelism or evangelical. It's the, what, what marks the, the evangelical church is uh, the church defined by a belief in the gospel. That's why when, you, when we say evangelicals, we're talking about gospel-centric movement. Fear not, good news for all the people. And what is this good news? A tax break? Political freedom? New job, new house. The good news is a Savior. A Savior who will give them shalom. Eternal, everlasting peace. And you know what? If you struggle with believing that, shepherds, go into Bethlehem. You're going to find a baby lying in a manger. There's not many babies lying in mangers. Go, that's your sign. You know it's him. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude, a plethos in the Greek, from which we get the word plethora, an uncountable multitude. There was a multitude of the heavenly Stratias, the Greek word for army, for, for, for the word from which we get the word stratagem, strategy, uh, strategic. Those words, the stratia, are the arms that, that, that affect those military campaigns. So what we have here is a plethora, a multitude of the heavenly stratia, the heavenly armies that cannot be numbered, they're praising God. Now, we, when we say, I'm praising God, we immediately associate that word with singing. But in the Bible, praise just means a focal point, a directional movement. You're praising, you're exalting God, whether by speech or song or action. It's a movement of self towards God. So the heavenly hosts are praising God and saying, it doesn't say they're singing, it says they're speaking, they're shouting, they're chanting. The heavenly stratia, the, the, the heavenly armies, a plethora that cannot be numbered, breaking out in chant. Glory to God in the highest. Why are the armies there? Why an army? You see, Revelation 12, and we talked about this a couple of Christmases ago, about the cosmic conflict leading up to God bringing in the Messiah into the world. And if you want to read Revelation 12, you see that for all of history, the armies of hell and Satan have been waging a war against the people of God. When we see the deportations and the evils and the enemies trying to destroy the nation of Israel... These are the efforts of the satanic to try and wipe out the line of the Messiah so the Messiah will not come. Mordecai, in the book of Esther, satanic emissary to wipe out the people of Israel. The wise men or the counselors and Daniel who tried to wipe out 
Daniel, and by effect then disperse and wipe out the people of Israel, satanic agents waging war against the movement of God, and then when Elijah is like, I alone am left, there's nobody else. Satan has won the war. God says, nah, Elijah, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. Ain't nobody going to stop my plan. God didn't really say it that way, but God's saying, my people, I'm going to move my plan forward. And Satan and hell can wage war all they want, but I'm going to fulfill my purpose. And the culmination of that war found when the dragon there is waiting to destroy the woman in Revelation 12, that apocalyptic imagery. And Herod, who wants to destroy the children in Bethlehem, wants to destroy the Messiah, the King. But God is victorious. His armies are victorious. And they break on the scene, girded for war, but girded now for war in proclamation and in victory, saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, shalom. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Their response is, let's go and see, with haste, with hurriedness. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. In verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. You know what their response was? It was a response of genuine belief. A response of genuine belief. They didn't see the baby in the manger and then say, hey, that's really nice. All right, guys, back to the fields, back to life. Back to the way of living that we had before. No, a true response of belief results in proclamation. They made known. And then it says in verse 20 that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen as it had been told them. So they they made known, they proclaimed the Messiah and then they carried on the worship begun by the angels. You see, the heavenly armies are proclaiming glory to God. The shepherds go and see Jesus. And now the shepherds are going out and they're saying glory to God. The worship continues. And Mary, verse 19, she saw all these things and treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds made known. They worshiped and glorified God. Mary treasured these thoughts, pondered these thoughts, meditated on what she had seen and heard, and wondering at this point, what did they all mean? The quiet worship of a submitted heart. But God broke into our world by bringing his son, what we celebrate at Christmas time when he was born in a manger, in order to bring us shalom, A shalom that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 66, 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an ever-flowing stream. I'm going to extend to Israel and to the nations shalom, a shalom that came by a little baby, 
who grew up as a sinless sacrifice to be put to death on a cross and then resurrected a third day and then went into heaven and ascended bodily, leaving us with a, a proclamation to go like the shepherds did and to proclaim Christ. Knowing that one day he's going to come again, the true Augustus, the true exalted one, the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords, who will finally make all things right. So until that day, brothers and sisters, keep celebrating Christmas. Keep talking about the baby. And see a God who is able to move world events itself to accomplish his divine purposes. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your goodness, your mercy and your kindness. If there is someone here who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, pray they would come talk with me, with one of the pastors up here, and we could show them from your word how they might be saved, might be forgiven, how they might experience true peace, true shalom. Heavenly Father, as your people, help us to never forget how you weave together history for your purposes. And when we begin to despair or begin to be elevated in pride of self-magnification, may we remember your Son who in humility and weakness laid low the powers of this world. We can trust him. We can stand on your promises. And we look forward to that day when you come truly King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee shall bow. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.